at today's readings from Acts 13, verses 13 to 52, which can be found on page 1107 of the Pew Bibles. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, 
for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, and if, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very good morning to you. If you're here for the first time, a warm welcome. Love to meet you afterwards. And uh, we're back on page 1107 in the Bibles. If you could grab one of those from in front of you in the pew or underneath your seat or around you somewhere. We're working through these chapters in the book of Acts. And seeing how they speak into our lives today. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for your word, more than just stories of old, a living word that speaks into our lives today. Please speak now by your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear your voice in our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. Amen. Well, have you heard the phrase trust deficit? describes the way that more and more in the modern world we struggle to trust each other. The Russian playwright Anton Chekhov said, you must trust and believe in people or life becomes impossible. And that sounds right, doesn't it? And yet, what do we see now with, you know, deep fake AI increasingly able to impersonate real people so you're never quite sure if what you're seeing is real and what you're hearing social media and remote working, creating the illusion of connection that isn't always matched by reality. And then with people in positions of power, breaking trust left, right and centre in the world, in government, in business, even in the church, we're living with a trust deficit that is only getting worse and so for Christians, the question that follows then is, well, what does that do for our trust in God? God can seem, maybe a little, like the ultimate remote 
worker. You know, as we see the chaos in the world around us increasing or or, or we face personal turmoil and crisis and we pray and, and it just keeps getting worse. And we might be tempted to think at least inwardly, is God, you know, is he... Is he away from his computer? Is he asleep on the job? Is he there at all? Well, at the heart of the reading that we have in front of us from Acts chapter 13 is this sermon that the Apostle Paul preached. Do you see in, um, in verse 14, near the beginning of the reading, they've been sent out, remember, from Antioch to take the good news further afield. And now they arrive in another Antioch confusingly, and and they've gone to the synagogue and they are asked, verse 15, as seemed to be the custom when when guests came to a synagogue, they were asked for a word of encouragement. And as we think about that trust deficit in one another and in God, what we need is a word of encouragement. Now there are several sermons recorded at key moments in the book of Acts. The way Luke does it, he doesn't record the words of every sermon that he talks about, but there are sermons associated with the two major sections of the book, the section that began in chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost and the gospel going first to the Jews, and there is a great sermon there and the the response recorded, and that kind of sets the tone for the chapters 2 to 9 of the kinds of things that happen and the kind of things that get talked about. And now we see from chapter 10, 11 onwards, a new section begins as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And now we get another full sermon recorded here. Now, of course, we presume, even though it's quite long to read, it's still only a few minutes. So we presume it's a summary, not a word for word. This is just what Paul said Um, But it illustrates the kind of preaching that was going on in these sections. That seems to be the way that Luke is structuring his book to show that that's what he's doing. And as well as showing that the newly converted Apostle Paul was preaching the same message as the Apostle Peter back in Jerusalem, and that's quite important as Paul goes to the Gentiles, is he saying the same thing? Yes, he is. As well as doing that, there are many words of encouragement here for them then for us now so let's see how that works first of all you can see on the back of the notice sheet if you follow and 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 on the screen first of all we can see from Paul's message God rules over history God rules over history if you can put that up up on the screen as well that would be helpful Um, God rules over history back in chapter 7 Stephen gave an impassioned defense at his trial which involved a much fuller account of the history of God's people and how they had rejected God over and over again. And actually, he actually gets cut off halfway because his hearers have had enough, as he keeps pointing out again and again how the history of the people of God is that they've rejected the God who, who saved them. He gets cut off halfway because they've had enough. And, you know, in, in, in Hampstead, people just quietly make their way to the exit when they've had enough. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, that's what you do. Uh, with Stephen, what did they do? Well, they stoned him. And we read back in the first chap- verse of chapter 8, as they stoned him, who was there giving approval to his death? It was Saul, who had heard the, 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 the defence that Stephen had given 
and now he was there as he, as he died. And a few things have happened since then, including an, an experience on the road to Damascus. And now Saul, we, we are hearing, is also called Paul. But it's striking that here he is now doing something similar, speaking about the work of God and the history of God's people. Saul's had a complete turnaround. Now he's a follower of Jesus. And so here, we don't get the history in so much detail. We go through it quite quickly. But do you notice um, in these verses, verses 16, 17 onwards, do you notice who the subject of most of the verbs is here? The, the subject, remember, if you missed the day they did grammar in school, the subject is the one doing the action. Who's doing the action here? Well, God chose he made the people great with uplifted arm. He, 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 led them out of the, uh, he, he led them out of Egypt. He put up with them, it says. He destroyed seven nations, gave them their land, gave them judges, gave them Saul, raised up David, brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus. So who's the subject? It is God, totally in control through history. And so this is the first plank in fixing that trust deficit because what we're seeing here is that Jesus didn't randomly appear in history as a kind of slightly arbitrary kind of rabbit out of a hat to solve our problem with sin he is the end point of God's arrangement of history around uh, arranging history around his plan to bless the world through a particular people and so when Jesus comes, we, we know it's him, and we, we, we know that he really is the saviour of human beings because all the signs point to him. So Paul points out John the Baptist is another sign pointing forwards. <clears throat> Verses 24-25. Uh, uh, John the Baptist saying, I'm not he, he's, it's the one coming after me. So you know that feeling when you arrive somewhere for a meeting or an appointment and you're thinking I haven't been here before am I in the right place you know have I found the right building well it helps doesn't it if there have been signposts all the way down the street followed by a massive neon sign on the front of the building with the company name or whatever it is well it gives you confidence that you've arrived in the right place and that is what God working in history up to the coming of Jesus is like do you see it's giving us confidence. He's totally in control. There's no surprises. We can trust him. Everything is happening as it should be in his plan. And the sense of there being one plan through all of history also helps us trust God because it gives us confidence that God is not a kind of well, let's try plan A, then plan B, plan C, plan D, E, F need to follow. He's not that kind of God. He's a one plan, get it done, God. So we're, tr we're currently trying to install a projector a screen in, in this building. Because, you know, we have a, a lovely portable screen here, but it's, it's a bit low. So, you, you know, if you're sitting at the back, you've probably experienced this. It'd be great if it was a bit higher and then everyone could see it. But that would mean needing to kind of install it. But this is, of course, a, a lovely grade one listed building. So you can't just do that. You need to go into battle with Camden Council. 
to do that. And you see, you know, we've got, we've got the best people on this and, our, and architects and planning consultants, you know, trying to do something that is acceptable from a heritage point of view and, and sympathy with this beautiful building. But we're definitely now on plan B, if not plan C, of the various things that have been tried in order to find the design that works, that will satisfy planning concerns and, and, and do what it needs to do and all of that. And, you know, we will probably have experienced this in different ways. That is what planning is like, isn't it? You try one thing and they reject it, you try something else. But you see, it's not like that with God. He doesn't have to go back to the drawing board and try plan B when plan A is rejected by Camden Council. He starts with plan A, and he gets plan A done. From the beginning of history to the end of history. So that's what we see here, and that's what will continue to give us confidence today, because we find ourselves, don't we, in situations where it feels like plan A isn't working. When it feels like maybe... God has stepped away from his computer. He's, he's gone silent. And we need to know, no, he's only got one plan. It's the plan that he's been working on from the beginning. And so we can trust that he will get it done. He rules over history. Do you see? He rules over history. And then that thought continues as Paul then focuses particularly on Jesus. So secondly, we go to the next, uh, next slide, Jesus saves despite rejection. Jesus saves despite rejection because if ever something looked like plan A not working, it's the death of Jesus, isn't it? You know, God sends his son and they kill him. What is going on? So it's like when Julius Caesar sent his great general Crassus on his campaign to Parthia in a great plan of expansion for the Roman Empire. And you know this, this guy Crassus, he led a force of 40,000 Roman soldiers into battle against a much smaller force of, of only 10,000 Parthians at the Battle of Carrhae. Or Karai, something like that. And they had highly skilled archers who had outmaneuvered the Romans. And it was an extraordinary defeat for the Romans. And the great general Crassus was captured and he was killed by having molten gold poured into his mouth just to make the point. And it was highly embarrassing for Caesar and a great setback for the Roman Empire. And it stands as a lasting reminder to those in power not to overreach and underestimate their enemies. And you see, at face value, when God sends Jesus and they kill him, well, it looks like that kind of situation, doesn't it? But let's, let's look, look more closely. Look at how Paul puts it. Verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles... It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Now listen to this. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not 
recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So do you see? Their worst rejection was part of the plan. It was when they thought they were derailing God's plan that they were in fact fulfilling it. Because they were carrying out, verse 29, they were carrying out all that was written about him. And the reason we know that is true is because God then raised him from the dead as he promised, all in the plan. Do you see? And he emphasizes again, look at these Psalms, he says, how they point forward to what was going to happen. So he quotes Psalm 2 and then Psalm 16. What God promised has taken place. His crucified Savior has risen from the dead, demonstrating that he is God's Son and defeating death. Now, we might think today, or people might think today, you know, come on, no one believes Jesus rose from the dead. There was a fascinating survey commissioned by the BBC who were in pursuit of a particular headline that they wanted. So there's nothing like writing a headline and then going to look for the stats to prove that it's true, is there? But this is what they did. They wanted the headline that said, more people in Britain today believe in reincarnation than believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that's the headline they wanted. So they, they went looking for that and asking all the questions. And they conducted a proper survey, you know, mark, pro properly done, try and prove it. And uh, 2015 and 2022, it was repeated, the BBC Comres survey. And what they found was that actually 17% of the UK believe Jesus rose from the dead as described in the Bible word for word. It's a pretty extraordinary number, isn't it? 17% when you compare that to the number of people who come to church, for example, of the percentage of the population. And, that, and then beyond that, 44% are prepared to say that they believe that it happened in a slightly looser sense. 44%. It's extraordinary. Now, you, you might want to, um, to, to you know, ask exactly what people understood by that, because you can't imagine that they understand that it's true in the sense that the Bible talks about it. But... You know, these are proper surveys that were commissioned to try and prove the opposite, that no one believes this stuff anymore. But it gives us confidence as Christians, if we're believing in Jesus, it gives us confidence that to talk about these things in the world today is not as crazy as we might fear that it is. And we believe that there are good reasons to do so. We believe that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the key to knowing once again that we can trust that God will get his plan A done. Nothing will derail him. Because even the worst opposition was kind of priced in from the start. Even the worst opposition was part of the plan. So for us, in the worst of circumstances whatever that might be, when the news from the hospital is bad, when the job falls through, when the relationship fails, God is a plan A God. We can trust him. He's got this. And so Paul comes to his conclusion, and we see also their response. 
So God rules over history. Jesus saves despite rejection. And thirdly, let me put that up. Forgiveness is free. Act now. Forgiveness is free. Act now. So verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That is the result of Jesus' death. No amount of keeping laws could bring about full and lasting forgiveness. So think of Martin Luther. You know, his sense of not being good enough for God drove him to total despair. And he was absolutely determined to earn his forgiveness from God, but he couldn't do it. And he became terrified of the idea of the righteousness of God, that if God was so perfect and holy, well, how could he ever possibly please him? And then it came to him that when the righteousness of God that the Bible talks about, when it talks about the righteousness of God, it's actually a gift from God to us in Christ. That in Christ he gives us Jesus' perfect righteousness, which we don't deserve, and Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. And so Luther said this, he said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. You see, that is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. And then he comes to his conclusion and he drives his message home. He says, don't be like those who heard the prophets and ignored them. It's like with the, resur- with the rejection of Jesus. It was priced into God's plan and so now is, is the rejection of the message. Can you see that in verse 41? If the uh, Jewish believers reject the message, that is their cue to take the message to the Gentiles instead. And God is in control even of how the message then is received. Do you see that in verse 48? When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And it's easy to think, isn't it, to hear that and to think, well, how is that fair? You know, that God even controls the way people respond to the message. He's Lord of history and he's even controlling this. But do you notice, Paul expresses this really carefully. It's impossible to take credit, or rather Luke actually is telling this. Luke expresses this really carefully. It's impossible to take credit for believing because God has appointed those who believe. So you can't say, well done me for putting my trust in Jesus. No, you can't do that. It's a gift from God. But equally, the emphasis when it comes to people rejecting the message is on people's personal responsibility. So verse 46, he says, uh, we ha- we, we, you, you reject and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. And so we now turn to the Gentiles. 
You know, it's not that, you know, here are these people, and they'd love to believe if they could, but God won't let them. No, they are doing exactly what they want to do. That's the point. C.S. Lewis put it like this in pretty striking language. He, he said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And that is simply making the point that those who persist in rejecting Jesus to the end will be doing exactly what they themselves want to do. If you ask them that, they're saying, yeah, this, this, is, this is my will. And that means that although it's true that God is absolutely in charge of us and our response, in terms of what we actually experience here and now, the choice that we face is real, as real as any choice that we face in our lives. And more than that, the choice that we face is urgent. So, you know, this isn't like an episode of QI. Do you, do you, do you, like, do you like QI? You know, that QI stands for quite interesting, I believe. That's the point. And, and it's full of quite interesting facts that are maybe quirky, entertaining, you know, occasionally laugh out loud, hilarious. But, you know, if you don't watch QI, you haven't really missed anything. But that isn't the kind of message that Paul holds out here. You know, he's not sort of giving a message about, you know, one of the, those crazy facts that they come up with, like the surface area of a cat. You know? The surface area of a cat, which including all the surface area of all its hairs... Uh, is enough to carry uh, to cover an entire ping pong table, apparently. So there you go. It's an interesting message, isn't it? It's quite interesting, but it's not going to change your life. See, the, this message that Paul is, is telling us here is more like the message that the building is on fire. So put up this next slide. We, we have this special slide. You know, this slide is at the end of every service. It's there. It's there just in case. So we've got it. Okay, it's the special slide that we put up that tells you what to do if the alarms goes off. And we did this in a practice um, a few months ago, and we get everyone outside and all that kind of thing. And you know, if, this, if we put this slide up if for real, not now, but if we put this slide up for real, you know, let me just explain. We're not looking for people to go, well, you know, that's quite interesting. Oh, the building's on fire. Fancy that. I mean, I really wasn't expecting that when I woke up this morning. Ha! Huh. And then just to sort of carry on as we are. You see, no, if, we put it, if you put that up, you see, you actually need to get up and leave. You need to do something. Do you see? It's urgent. In an orderly fashion. Don't run, obviously. But see, that there may be a, a warning here for us as well. Go back to the other slide now. Particularly if we know, you know, we, we've heard this message many times but we haven't personally responded. What will it take to do that? Because this is real and it's urgent. That is what we're seeing here. We, we don't know how long we have before we die or Jesus returns. Don't leave it too late. And that's why when this message is rejected, Paul turns to the Gentiles because he said, we've got to get, people have got to hear about this. And so we'll just keep going. We'll keep going and finding, if, if, if you don't want to hear it, we'll find some other people who want to hear it. That's the idea. Because it's urgent. And actually, that is an encouragement too, if we are trusting in Jesus, in our own sharing of our faith as well. 
Because we need to know God is in control. We can trust him. And actually, that is good news. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be afraid. It, it takes a miracle for our friends and families and loved ones to believe. So pray and trust. Remembering, for, you know, for many of those we love, it's not yet too late. Don't write them off too soon. Keep taking the opportunities when they come to share the message. So we're like a bowler in cricket, or, you know, if, if you must, a pitcher in baseball. But we are, you know, what's our job? Our job is to just keep bowling the ball or pitching the ball. You know, we're not responsible for what happens at the other end. We're responsible for just keeping on getting the ball down the pitch. And for the rest, we trust God. And so that trust deficit that we started with, where does that leave us now? We need to see, don't we, that God is a plan A God from beginning to end. No amount of rejection can throw him off course. It's priced in, whether we're talking about those who rejected Jesus and crucified him or those who, who may reject him today. No surprises. And so in this kind of increasingly crazy world, we, we, we may not be able to trust many people or many things, but we can trust him. He's committed to us through the death and resurrection of his son. So keep trusting him, keep on bowling and pitching so that those who don't yet believe have every opportunity to hear about Jesus and join his people by trusting him. Let's pray now. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this message. Might we receive it with that same joy, whether now for the first time or to receive again in order to be able to believe and see it transform our lives and then to share with the world around us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a plan A God we can trust you. And we can trust you with the circumstances of our lives. We can trust you when it's hard to share our faith. Because you are going to get your plan done. And so we come to you and we trust you today. Amen. Oh,